0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends about Jesus. All right. We just got done with how John was using the plagues of Egypt as a poetic device to lock people's minds on how uncomfortable it is to abandon God. That was the seven trumpets in the the last episode. Okay? All right. So next, in the, I don't know, how do we say this, the crazy dreamscape of John in chapter 15 of the book of Revelation... He sees the temple. Verse 6. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls. Now, wait wait a minute. Uh, I've seen this before. You've seen this before. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. I see where this is going. So John is again going to use the Exodus narrative. It is one of the foundational narratives of Judaism. And so the people are really familiar with it. So he's going to use the plagues again to paint a mental picture of what it is like to resist God. Got it? All right, here we go. Let's jump in. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of the God's wrath on the earth. And the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now again, remember the mark of the beast, it's the anti-shema, anything resisting God, worshipping anything else besides God, that's what it's getting at. And here he's alluding to the sixth plague in Exodus, where boils are poured out on the land and everybody in Egypt has festering boils on them. Now, last time with the, the seven uh, trumpets, John did plague seven, one, nine, and eight. So um, this is not one that he did last time. This is the sixth one. And last time he did seven, one, nine, and eight. This one's the sixth one. Alright, next, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned to blood like, the dead per- like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. Now the blood one is a reference to the first plague, which he talked about last time in a different form. And remember the point he is getting at is he's trying to paint a picture to create a feeling, right? Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And then I heard an angel cry uh, of the waters and say, now this is the focus is on the second part of the first plague, the waters turned to blood, where the fish in the Nile die and the rivers stink and the Egyptians aren't able to drink the water. So he's taken that one plague and split it in two, just again, that rich imagery going on. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire and they were seared with an intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over plagues but they refused to repent. So uh, this is a repeat of the seventh plague he did last time with the fire but also it is pointing out the resistance to God just as Pharaoh refused to repent. He is showing that even though people are going through difficulties, they are going to refuse to repent and turn to God here. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and the kingdoms was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, but refused to repent for what they did. Also a repeat of the ninth plague that he did last time, the three days of darkness right there. But again notice the tone. Why is he using this as a reference? It is showing that people won't change. Even us. We refuse to to go and, and learn and change. That's just how we've always done it, right? That's where I feel comfortable. That's what I want to do, whatever, right? The the this resistance, this resistance to the reality of life, the change of life it, is a really big point. It's this theme that Pharaoh is pointing out over and over again. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates as its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. This is referencing when Moses stretches out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the sea, right? Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets. And they are demonic spirits that perform signs. And they go out on the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of the God, of God Almighty. Now this is alluding to the second plague that he didn't do last time. When the frogs come out and cover their houses and they 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 don't have any more room anywhere, right? The land stank of frogs. And then Pharaoh um, has his heart hardened and decided that he would not repent. Okay, so with these seven bulls, what's the point here? What's the poetic idea, the word picture he's trying to get at? So what? Why, why this vibe of hopelessness? Why this vibe of sorrow? Think about it. And unfortunately, it's not over yet. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed when I come. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. Now, when you hear John say Armageddon, you read a lot of meaning into that word. So let's recalibrate your expectation real quick to what they would have heard. See, Armageddon is a location, Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo, and it's not really even a mountain, it's a tell, meaning that the the ground has been built up because for thousands of years people have been living in the same place and all their detritus just builds up over time and you kind of get a mountain from people living there. Now, when the Jews in John's time hear Armageddon, Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo, they immediately have an emotional reaction to this imagery. Because the biggest Jewish battle was fought at Har Megiddo in about 609 BC. It was between Egyptian pharaoh Necho II and the kingdom of Judah. And it was in this battle that King Josiah was killed. Now, when you hear that, you don't have an emotional reaction. They do. Why? So what? Why is this such a big deal? Why is this single word an Easter egg or a, a, just a drop that gets them thinking in a bit? Well, at this point in 609 BC, Israel had been up and down a hot mess for decades, centuries even. And then comes along Josiah. Josiah remodels the temple, re the law of Moses. People are worshiping God and things are great. But then Armageddon. See, when Josiah is king, his kingdom isn't really an independent kingdom. It's technically a client state of Assyria. Then Assyria is overthrown by Babylon. Now Babylon had been a big empire in the past. They went down, Assyria rose up, but Babylon kind of has this resurgence and they take over Babylon, excuse me, Babylon takes over Assyria. It's kind of like if like West Virginia rose up and took over America, like if one portion of the the empire rose up and took it over, and that's what happens, Babylon regains power here. Well, Egypt fears this rise of this neo-Babylonian empire because Babylon had been big time. And so they take advantage of this turmoil and they take over what was Assyrian territory, clear up to the Euphrates River in Syria. Babylon counterattacks and Israel is caught in the middle. In the process of all of this, Josiah, king of Judah, the one helping people connect with God, is killed in a battle with the Egyptians at the battle of Har-Megido, Armageddon. So why why does this matter so much? Well, it's because of what happens after this. Pharaoh Necho's army is then defeated by the Babylonians in 605, and Josiah's successor, Jehoiakim, begins paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And some of the young nobility in Judah are taken to Babylon kind of as hostages, like Daniel. And in the following years, the the court of Jerusalem is divided into two parties. One really supports Egypt, the other Babylon. Now, Egypt and Babylon keep fighting, and Nebuchadnezzar is defeated in a battle in 601 by Egypt. And so when that happens, the Egyptian um, favoring individuals in Jehoiakim's court win out and they convince Jehoiakim to revolt against Babylon. But it doesn't go well. The rebellion ends up in a three-month siege of Jerusalem beginning in late 598 B.C., Jehoiakim dies during the siege and is succeeded by his son Jehoiachin, who is only 18 at the time. The city finally falls on March 16, 597 BC. Nebuchadnezzar pillages Jerusalem, pillages the temple, and takes Jehoiachin, his court, and other prominent citizens, including the prophet Ezekiel, back to Babylon. And Jehoiachin's great-uncle, Zedekiah, is then appointed as a puppet king to rule in his place. So at this time, you get Jeremiah and others warning Zedekiah. um, But it doesn't matter. Zedekiah in time gets angry at paying tribute to Babylon, feels like they're going to be okay. And so Zedekiah revolts, rebels against Babylon, enters into an alliance with Pharaoh Hophra of Egypt, and um, sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar returns, defeats the Egyptians, and again besieges Jerusalem, and ultimately straight up destroys Jerusalem in 587 BC. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city walls, destroys the temple, destroys the houses, and massacres all the prominent citizens zedekiah and his sons are captured trying to escape they take zedekiah's sons and systematically execute them in front of zedekiah and then blind him so the last thing he sees is the murder of his sons and then he is taken to babylon now judah then becomes a babylonian province and there is no more independent kingdom of Judah or Israel till basically after World War II for thousands of years. So when a Jew at John's time hears Har Megiddo, Armageddon, that's what they hear complete defeat, losing everything, hopelessness. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of uh, the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island was fled away and the mountains could not be found. And from the sky, hailstones each weighing about a hundred pounds fell on the people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. So this mixing of imagery, the plague and imagery of hailstones with the imagery of earthquakes, Um, is something that that those in Jerusalem would have been familiar with. In John 19, verse 30, Jesus, when he had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And behold, when the veil of the temple was rent in twain, top to bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Like... Around this time, like, we have geographical evidence um, reporting, like, this strong earthquake. So it's setting up the, this vibe, right? This image, like, the death of God, the, mixed with, like, the, the plagues of Egypt. It's this vibe that is, like, it looks like everything sucks. But... Here's where he's building to. In the last five chapters of John, he's going to show, okay, I've showed you how your situation is like the situation of the ancients, and it's burdensome, and it's hard, and it's a struggle, and it's a grind. But there's reason for hope, he says. And because it's John, and because it's a book of Revelation, he doesn't just come right out and say it. He uses poetic imagery. He goes back to this image of an attractive woman. See, back in chapter 12, he introduces this beautiful woman, this bride of Christ. Now he's going to introduce the bride of Babylon. And I think you probably know where this is going already. As a man, I'll probably stick to the attractive woman analogy, but it could easily go attractive man for you ladies out there. See, like what he's saying is what we've all experienced. You've all met attractive women. Some are, are like a country song where they bring a little heaven to earth. A little bit of up there, down here. And some look amazing, but they will ruin your life. Start fights with your friends. Burn your high school yearbook after a fight. Catfish your co-workers on the internet. See the Crazy Hot Matrix if you need a review. This is man Maneater vs. Kingmaker. So you have met the girl that makes you want to buy dirt and settle down in chapter 12. Meet the hot girl that will wreck your life in chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by the many waters. Now remember, water, ever since the beginning of Genesis, is a placeholder for chaos. So basically, he, he is strongly saying, watch the end of chaos in your life. Watch the end of pain and suffering. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. Okay, so you have this beast with seven heads, seven means whole or complete, 10 power right here. And the horns are power, right? So this is a symbol of an agent of perfect chaos, entropy, destruction. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. So she looks good, right? Remember, hot girl, but will burn your favorite hoodie. Got it? She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And the name was written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great. So this is the title itself, Babylon the Great. Babylon has long since, by the time of John, lost its sway in the world. And it's never going to become what it was, as far as I can tell. It's basically a desert wasteland in South Iraq now. But it, this title, Babylon, is the easiest shorthand for Jews. It's a placeholder for anybody op- opposing God, opposition to God. You say Babylon, it means opposition to God. It's this place where money and power are more important than growth in people. The other title she has written on her is the mother of prostitutes. Now, again, this is another title and it's very symbolic. If Israel is married to Jesus, like the inspiring kind of girl, right? The kind you take home to your mom. Well, this girl is one you met, took home to your mom and seemed like she was great. And then she cheated on you with your best friend. And honestly, he's calling us all out right here. When he talks about prostitution, when he talks about adultery, he's saying, hey, you were all married to Jesus. You all made a promise to be loyal to him and follow him. And you've all like worshiped other things. You've all substituted other things. And I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Now, now this is a hallmark of the anti-shema. The, the mark of the beast, those that don't follow Jesus, they seek to force things to be how they want. They use violence in words and in deeds instead of faith, gentleness, long-suffering, and persuasion. If you find that you are using compulsion, you are using the tools of the the adversary or the enemy right there. And then John gives you a little bit of insight about what he's talking about. The seven heads of the beast are the seven hills. This is a direct reference to the geography of of Rome. He is alluding to the fact that right now in John's time, there is systematic political and bureaucratic persecution against the saints. The 10 horns are 10 kings. In other words, like the government is persecuting you. There are systematic things leading to your current misery But I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then John is going to use imagery drawn from Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel to show how the enemies of Israel in the past, namely Tyre, Edom and Babylon were all brought low And this should uh, remind the people in John's time, hey, your enemies eventually will be brought low. It's a temporary thing. And he's saying to us, your current situation is a temporary situation. This too shall pass. So this is how he does it. And the mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. And then you have a scene switch after he goes through all this imagery of the destruction of past kings. And you go back to God's throne room, back to the beginning of the vision. And I heard the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And the 24 elders, remember that this draws you back to that original scene, right? Back to the throne room. And the four living creatures, okay, it's an anchor point. And they fell down and worshiped God who was seated at the throne. Everything seems horrible. Like everything seems lost. Why are they worshiping God? They are saying in the midst of this terrible stuff, let us rejoice and be glad. Why? Let us give him glory. Why? Because the wedding of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. The type of girl that makes the groom cry when she's walking down the aisle. The type of girl that makes old men die with contentment. This is the imagery, the word art, the poetry he is coming with here. And he said, the angel to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding of the supper of the lamb. Blessed are you. You You're invited to a wedding feast. I know things are crazy, but there's a wedding Remember, a wedding feast is the best thing going for a common person back in the day. Food, friends, laughter, romantic love, dancing. It is life, life in all its glory. And you are invited to this wedding feast, this symbol of what it is like to be saved by God. And here comes the groom. And I saw heaven standing open and before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. That is the Amen. (laughs) That's the title for it. The Amen. The faithful and true. And his eyes are like blazing fire. And his head are many crowns. This is not just any dude. This is the king. The type when the bride sees him standing there. She knows she's going to be taken care of for the rest of her life. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. It's solid ground. It's hope. And he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This is before the battle and he's already covered in blood. Why? Because he already died. The battle's already won. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. They are clean because he has already paid. And he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then those who oppose him, those that wreck you, end. They're cast into a fiery lake. This is an image of hell. Uh, It's actually translated from the word Gehenna. And that comes from the the actual place name for a, a deep, narrow ravine south of Jerusalem. This is where some Hebrew parents actually sacrificed their children to the Ammonite god Moloch in the time of kings. Later, the, this goalie served as the city dump. And so they, they're continually burning garbage there. And it became this graphic symbol of a place of punishment of the wicked. And basically, when we say hell or Gehenna, uh, we're, we're, we're to saying it's a garbage dump. Uh, it's the, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, Gehenna, hell. The, those who have done wickedly are going to be thrown out in the trash, is what John is saying. It's just, I don't know, the vibe is victory. It's the vibe of end of sorrows right here. The humans that that fight against God and sow misery will get misery. What about the, the supernatural forces that seem to oppose God? And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. Okay, now I don't know if you're you're visualizing this, but to really understand this, you need to understand how the ancient people viewed the the physical world. See, they thought of the this world as kind of like an island surrounded by water. Like, I mean, literally surrounded. There's water below the great deep or the abyss, the chaos where the serpents, the leviathan, the dragon, all those lived in the great deep and deep in the abyss of the water. Then you had the earth or the solid ground and it was covered by a dome of stones and you had waters above, okay? And so then down below you had Sheol, or hell, the, the place, the grave right there, the depths of the earth, and then under the earth again, the abyss or the chaotic deep. So what John is saying is those supernatural forces that oppose humans and oppose gods, those chaos monsters, they are going to be returned to the chaotic deep, never to return. It fits into how they see the ancient world. And he uses the word a thousand years. Properly, this is the product of 10 times 10 times 10, 10 cubed. Uh, Figuratively, this means total, complete, emphatic inclusiveness, showing that nothing could be left out. Now, I'm going to give you a caution here. Um, This book, we read it symbolic, symbolic, symbolic. Like there's no animals with seven heads and 10 horns. We know it's symbolic but suddenly now when we get to a thousand years we think of it as a literal thing i think that's tenuous strictly from an ancient symbolic perspective john is saying that all demons all opposition to god will be bound and nothing will be left out there will be utter and complete inclusive safety that is the vibe he's trying to get you give you right here i saw the thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those that had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. This is the Shema versus the anti shema right? Like it's not that people are perfect if they're saved. It's that they trust Jesus. That's the end battle right here. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Again, total and complete. No one is left out. Complete safety. The rest of the dead did not come into life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in this first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Sounds nice, right? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And the the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, important and unimportant standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done and what was recorded in the book. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death, or Sheol, and the grave gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they needed. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And there is no longer any sea. There's no longer any chaotic waters. There's no longer even a way for the Leviathan, the chaos monsters, the devil, Satan to come back. There's no sea to come back from. He's saying that this is a place of order, of safety, of goodness. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. From God prepared as the bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, the wedding feast imagery. I love this imagery. the celebration of romantic love. That no party like a wedding party. Friends, food, dancing. And it's a wedding, so there's going to be other fun stuff. It's joy incarnate. That's the vibe he wants you to have. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the language of the covenant. Here, John is dropping references to Exodus, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Isaiah, everywhere. We talk about the Abrahamic covenant or the new and everlasting covenant, and nobody knows what it means. This is what it means. It means I will be your God and you will be my people. That's it. And this is the fulfillment of the covenant. Here, after so many false starts, after so many failures, we get fulfillment. And it's everything you ever hoped for. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. All that stuff dies in the old world. And the old order of things passed away. And God says, he who was seated on the throne, I am making everything new. That's the hope, right? And he said, write this down, John. For the, these words are trustworthy and true. This is what he said. This is what he said to write. It is done. It is done. Already done. I am Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. It's like, it's about me. I got this. Trust me. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came and said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. You remember, he had showed the, the um, wife of Babylon before. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem. So what he's showing here is those invited to connect with God isn't just one person. It's this whole city, this symbolic covenant people. Anybody who is promised or married to God, this is who he's saving, the city of Jerusalem. And it shone like the glory of God and its brilliance was like a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. If the battle of Armageddon is supposed to make you think of complete loss, this is supposed to be complete restoration. The city that was destroyed after Armageddon is now completely intact. Those of us who have been destroyed by our own actions will be completely restored. Our bodies that get old and die will be completely brought back. This is what he's saying. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. He's drawing on imagery of Ezekiel here. And to measure the city, its gates, its walls, the city was laid out in a square as long as it is wide. And he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. And as wide as, and high as it is long. It's symbolic. 12 times the thousand. 12 meaning this complete power of God, 1,000 times like as big as you can make it. This is a place of complete restoration, 12,000. And the angel measured the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. That is 12 times 12, like perfect power times perfect power, same difference. Complete power of God is what he's saying with this number. And the wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, pure as glass, and the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. But I didn't see a temple in the city, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations, remember remember back in the beginning where John heard a number and then saw endless nations? He's going back to this image. Who is going to be in God's presence? Everybody is invited. The key is just to trust the lamb. That's it. And the nations will walk by its light, meaning Jesus' light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. you and I, right? Kings and queens. And no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night. There will be no attack. There will be no fear. There will be no ring doorbells. There is complete, utter safety, peace, joy, and goodness. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. It's going back to the very beginning, Genesis 8. And the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put a man he had formed. And the Lord, God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground and the trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. It's saying, like he's using this poetic imagery to be like, okay, it's like the perfect temple. It's like the restored city. It's like Eden. Think of your, your top 10 hit list. I don't know. Like he's saying, it's like your all-inclusive vacation. It's like that that dream vacation on, I don't know, whitewater rafting, Paris hiking. I don't know what your vacation is, but he's trying to use all these images to say like, it is better than you can ever dream. And down the middle of the great city street of the city, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Life never stops, abundance never stops, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night, and there will not need any light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Look, I am coming soon. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And I, John, say, amen, Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. And that's the story. Kind of a crazy ride, right? But recognize what John's trying to do. He is acknowledging the difficulty of your current life situation. And he is saying it is familiar to the past life situation. And you're welcome to take this book and read it as a roadmap to the future. I think that's a little out of what, what is intended here, but have at it. I think if you really want to get to what this book is about, treat it like it's meant to be treated as a spiritual, symbolic movie to help you better understand life. Nobody watches Lord of the Rings and tries to calculate the future from that, but they are inspired by Sam Weiss's, Gamgee's loyalty, they're inspired by Frodo's bravery. That's what's going on here. John takes images from their best-known movies, lyrics from their most sung songs, and he paints a picture of their current life. He shows, yes, it's like getting punched in the kidneys right now. Yes, your team is getting beat like they've never even seen a football before. But I know something you don't know. Jesus came. He entered fully into the chaos of this life, fully into the entropy, sickness, decay, and death, fully into hell. And at his presence, in his glory, it all ended. His soul was drenched in blood, the pain so exquisite you have no idea, but he came out, holding the keys to death, to chaos, to sickness, to hell, to sin, there is nothing to be afraid of. The true king has already won. Heaven already exists. This is the message of the New Testament. And he, John is pleading with us to come. He's saying, go out and live like Jesus has already come, because he has. Go out and face life's complexity and hardship with full assurance that the faithful and true has already won, that the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star, has risen, that he lives with us, that he offers us right now living water. If you hurt, if you thirst, if you pain, come and he will wipe away every tear from your eye. The spirit of the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and drink of the waters of everlasting life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.